All right, 2 Thessalonians, let me turn there myself. We're going to continue our study in, uh, and hopefully conclude it today in uh, 2 Thessalonians. We'll look at 2 Peter a little bit on the uh, second coming of Christ. Um, just by way of review before we pray, I want to go through what we talked about last week and see if you guys can uh, remember a little bit about what we talked about. In 2 Thessalonians uh, verses one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is what we studied. Um, let's, um, okay, last week I talked about this. What is the, basically the only sign for the church of, that Jesus' coming is approaching? Now, I know that's a little bit of a tricky question. What is the only, we talked about last week, the only true, if you could say that, true sign that the, uh, that the Lord's coming is near. Jesus' coming in the rapture is near. Anybody want to take a stab at that? No? All right. Going once, going twice. It is the falling away, the falling away, the apostasy. We saw that in, uh, in Revelation in chapter 3 about the church at Laodicea as well. And it says, the scripture says, Many will depart from the faith. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. They'll be in the last days scoffers. And then in the last days they will not endure sound doctrine. They shall turn their ears from the truth. Uh, knowing that... Again, another, another trivia question from our, our study last week. Knowing that the state of Christianity lightly, you know, lightly used, is that the right word, lightly used? Or uh, Christianity, as we know, is going to degrade and decay before the coming of the Lord. The Lord has told us that. What is the Lord's primary command for us who want to be faithful? He tells us one thing in particular several times we studied. He says to do what? In light of that fact, that degradation, what does he tell us to do? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Why do you come up with one other than the one I said? Because that's actually, that's actually, that's right. But that's not the one I was talking about. But I'll give you, give you points for that. All right. What's, what's the one we talked about? See, here you do it again. That's right, but wrong. <laughs> the one we talked about was hold fast. All those are actually true, but the one we discussed last week was hold fast. Um, and so the Lord tells us to hold fast. I just want to park here just a second before we read. I guess, I guess before I studied this subject in, in detail for our Sunday school class, I didn't realize how profound that truth is, to hold fast. Um, you know, it, it tells us that the old way, you know, as the, as the trends of Christianity change, and they will change, as the Lord's coming approaches, He has told us plainly that the, that the state of Christianity, the church, if you want to say that, is going to get worse and worse, and they're going to, they're going to turn their ears from the truth. And, uh, and this is going to be the state. When the Lord returns, that's what He's going to find. He's already told us that. And in that context, it, we see that all around us is going to change, and the Lord tells us to hold fast. And that tells us that as these things change around us, that the new things 
the Lord says, in light of those, we need to stick with the old things. Now, when I say old, I'm not referring to styles or clothing or hairdos or anything like that. Uh, what I'm referring to is the truth, right? The principles. Because those truths and principles should be, right, founded upon the Scripture. Not, not changing styles and trends, but see, what has actually happened, happened is these things around us in, in the church, if you will, are changing, and the, the terminology used is, well, we're just updating the styles. We're just updating, you know, these trends and things like that. But that is only a euphemism and a veil, a cover for what is actually changing, which is the doctrines and the beliefs and the principles. Those are actually changing. It's just no one is going to come out and say, well, we used to believe this, but we don't believe that anymore. Nobody comes out and says that because that's obviously bad. But see, what's happening is those things are changing. But the front is, well, it's just style updates, but it's not. And what I'm saying is not that we keep, not that we maintain, uh, you know, we freeze, you know, the, in the 1970s in style, although we're kind of moving back in that direction, it seems, these days. But I'm not saying we freeze in the 1970s in the heyday or w whatever heyday you want to pick. What I'm saying is that we need to make sure that we're holding fast to the truths and principles of God's Word. And that, that in turn will affect all the other kind of outward things that we do or don't do, right? But again, the trend is negative. Okay, so let's, um, I'm, I'm running out of time here, so let's go ahead and, uh, and read. I want to read together chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's read it in unison, if you would, okay? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's read. Ready, set, go. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God." Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, the shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved." 
And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we want, first of all, we thank you for how good you are to us. Thank you for the, uh, the grace and health that you've given to those that are here. And we pray for those that are unwell today, that can't be here, Lord. Please be with them, comfort them, strengthen them, and heal them. And uh, Lord, we commit this time to you. Lord, we acknowledge we can't understand your word. We can't rightly divide it and rightly uh, interpret it except that you give us enlightenment and understanding. So please, Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we look at verses 6 and 7. He that now letteth will let. What does the word let mean? We studied it. Let. Hinder. Restrain. It's also in verse 6, also as what? Verse 6, the word let appears as a different word, which is withholdeth. Same word, right? The word let means to restrain. Now, again, these, uh, these verses do not clearly state who this person is that is restraining or hindering. All right? But we did study that last week to some degree. And, uh, and I propose to you that that person is probably the Holy Spirit as he is found in the church. Okay? And we looked at that uh, to some degree. And I, I do want to revisit that briefly. We have some time, so I would like to revisit that. Let's look back at John chapter number 16. I want to reiterate this because uh, this is an important point for us to get. And I felt last week we were rushed a little. So let's look at John 16. John 16. Verse... Number, verse number 8, John 16, verse number 8. Now, the context of John 16, remember, context is king. The context of John 16 is the coming of the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, the Lord speaking, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Who is the you? Christians, the church, exactly. All right, verse 8. And now notice this. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said he's going to send the Comforter to the church, to, the, to Christians, right, to indwell them. All right, verse 8. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Okay, so here's what we see here, and I want you to get this clear, clearly. When the Bible says the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is going to come, Jesus says he's going to come, he's not coming as in like this aura that kind of floats around the atmosphere. That's not the coming. What is the coming? The coming, how does the coming happen? Say again. Exactly, it's when the Spirit of God comes, or did come, to live inside of the believer, to indwell the believer forever. You know what, you have the Holy Spirit, 
Do you have the Holy Spirit? I hope you do. Because that is the, the mark that you are a true believer in Christ, that you have eternal life, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? By His effect upon your life. And what's interesting in that fact, in that regard, is some people ask that question is, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Um, you could describe it as, you know, the effect of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how He is working in us, and He, that is the Holy Spirit, is a person. And as a person, He works in us as a, a second party influencing us. So it's not like the, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, it's not like we just feel this or we feel that. No, it is the presence of another individual within us who is directing and leading us. And he speaks to us not with an audible voice, but he speaks to us with a, with a voice, a, if you could say a spiritual voice. And there, there is, and it's hard to explain perhaps, but that it's, it's true. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers. And that fact affects the way they live. And that is the difference between someone who is merely religious and someone who is a child of God. That difference. Okay. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come into the world. But we know that the way, the way that happened is he came into us. And we're in the world. So he's in the world via us. And notice what he says in verse 8. And when he has come, so we understand that, he will reprove the world of sin of right, and of righteousness and of judgment. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the what? To the world. But how, does that, how is that actually accomplished in practice? By the believer, by you and by me, by his influence and us, we in turn influence the world, but it's actually his influence through us. You see that? That's what this verse is talking about. So the Holy Spirit has a ministry that is reproving the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In other words, He is convicting them. He is pointing out the error. He is pointing out the sin. And He is pointing out their lost state. That's what He does. And He does it with your lips and life and my lips and life. Because he is in the world in us. Does everybody understand that? that? That's an important point, especially when we get to 2 Thessalonians. Okay? Let's look at another verse real quick. We looked at this last week. Let's look at it again, if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse number 11. Just as kind of a short review, Ephesians 5 verse 11 says this, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Chapter 5 verse 11, Ephesians 5 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That's sin. That's evil in the world. Not only the Lord tells us not to participate, but he tells us to reprove them. Now, our, our refusal to participate is a form of reproof itself. But beyond that, when we speak against it, and I'm not, this is not political act activism. This here is not political activism. 
This is Christian activism, if you, if you want to put it like that. This is a believer speaking out about that which, is, that which God calls evil, right? He says, reprove them. But you know what that is? That is the Spirit of God doing His ministry to this world and acting as a restraint. So the Spirit of God through us is reproving the works of darkness. That is the world, what the world loves and does. And as a result, combined with their conscience, they are restrained from what would be what what would they from that which they would give themselves wholly over to if there was no one to restrain. That's also the purpose of civil law, right? It's to restrain evil. That's one of the purposes. All right, look at John chapter 8, if you would. I'm going to look at a couple more passages in John. John 8. This is the story of the woman taken in adultery. Just want to read one verse. We know that the, they brought this woman taken in adultery. Of course, they didn't do it according to the law, and that's why Jesus did not condemn the woman, although she was guilty. He was not a witness, so he could not condemn her. This is probably among the most abused verses in the Bible. <laughs> but uh, in John 8, verse 9, the Lord says that the Bible says that Jesus wrote on the ground, verse 8. Verse 9 says, And they which heard it being convicted by their own, what does that say? Conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. They were bringing this woman to the Lord as a sin, right? In other words, they were committing a sin by doing it, even though that woman had committed a sin. Then bringing this woman to Jesus as a temptation to him was a sin. And Jesus writing on the ground, convicting them of what they were doing is, it notice it says they were convicted by their own conscience. Every man has a conscience. And that conscience restrained what they did. How do we know? Because they left. They did not continue in the sin that they had intended to do. It restrained them. John 3, if you would look at that real quick. John chapter 3. I'm going to show you one more passage on this subject, then we'll move on. John chapter 3. Look at verse number 20. Verse 19 says that light is coming to the world. We know that's Jesus. Verse 20 says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Same word. The Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin, right? So the light, the presence of the light is a reproof to evil in the world. Now, we are the light of the world. Now that the light of the world has gone to heaven, Jesus said that. We, his light shines in us like the light of the moon is actually not its own light, but the light of the sun reflected off of it. So we are lights in the world. And the light that we shine that, that uh, exposes evil is a reproof and a restraint to those that would do evil. Okay, so go back to 2 Thessalonians if you would. Verse 6, if you would look at that with me. 
Verse 6 says, And ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, the Antichrist. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, what we know is that this person who hinders, which I, I propose is the Holy Spirit in the, in the believer, will be taken out of the way because he serves to restrain that mystery of iniquity, that spirit of Antichrist that exists in the world. Now, here's what's interesting is once that person is removed, all that happens is mankind is left to himself and to the devil's influence. And he does what he naturally does. And he throws himself without any restraint whatsoever toward the sin that he loves. That's what mankind does. Now, as we talked about last week, this is assuming that this hindering person is the Spirit of God. And I think, remember, why do we say that? Besides the verses we've already looked at, there's other good reasons. In order for this person, this restrainer, uh, and for us to identify who he is, we know that he is against the works of darkness, the works of the devil, because he restrains the works of the devil. And he also has great power such that he can restrain the works of the devil. And that limits who this person can be severely. That's only a few people. And that person is essentially, it has to be God himself. Right? So you're left with, basically, there's only a couple of options. And that's what, that, all that combined tells us this is probably a reference to the Spirit of God, although the text does not uh, definitively say it. But assuming it is this, the Spirit of God is the person who restrains in verse number 7, this is a good argument for the fact of the pre-tribulation rapture. Because if it is the Spirit of God in the believer, just as the Spirit of God came to dwell in the believer... So when the believer is taken away, so the Spirit of God will be taken away, right? That's, that's kind of the way the argument goes. Now, in my personal opinion, this is not the best argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. We've already covered those before, especially in Revelation. We've already covered those. But this is another reason, if you will. All right, let's look at verse number 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is this wicked person that we're reading about? The Antichrist. Has he been revealed yet? No. Okay, so in time... This passage of Scripture that we're reading is what? Past, present, or future? Future. Okay, so it's important for us to establish that what we're reading here is future. Okay? This passage deals with a very specific time in history that has not yet occurred. Okay? You have to understand that when we read the verses that follow. This passage is not like a generally applicable passage to all times in history. This is speaking of a specific time in which the Antichrist is revealed and he deceives the world, and that's what the passage is talking about, and the events that follow that, okay? 
Because you know what? This is a grave warning. Look at verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Now, them that perish. But this is talking about in this time period, right? Follow it. Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see that? Who is this talking about? What people? What group of people? That receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. It is the unsaved, but it's, it's a subgroup of the unsaved. No. It's the unsaved of that time period when the Antichrist is revealed. That's the context, right? The Antichrist is revealed, and it says... Um, because they, those that are alive at that time, receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So this is a specific group of people in the world who are unbelievers that are living contemporary with the Antichrist, right? It's important that we understand that. We have to establish the time period. So the Antichrist comes in verse number 10, verse, verse 11, there is deception. We've already studied that in great detail, right? Talking about the miracles and supernatural wonders that the Antichrist will perform to deceive the nations, all right? So all of these things happen, and then get down to verse number, uh, verse 10 again, but with all, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you have the deception of the Antichrist working to deceive the nations at that time, and then you have the delusion that God sends people. That's different, right? What does verse 11 say? And for this cause, what's the next word? God shall send them strong delusion. What are you talking about? God's going to cause people to be deceived? Yes. Well, remember, that's why I want to establish the time. This is a reference to people during the tribulation because the Antichrist has already been revealed, Right? This is those people. And, and what happens is you have, again, I, I'm, I know I'm emphasizing this, but I want to make sure it's clear. So you have this group of people who are unbelievers, just like us, or just like we would be if we had, weren't saved. We were we're unbelievers living at the time in which we live right before the Lord returns for the church. All right, Now the Lord returns for the church. The church is out of here. The Antichrist is revealed. Those people have continued to live. They have lived through this period. And now they're in a period in, in the tribulation in which the Antichrist is, is deceiving people. Now, so they have lived in our time, if you want to put it like that, right? They may, might have even come to our church. And then the rapture happens, we're out of here, and they continue to live in this world during the period of the tribulation. It is specific to those people. And here's what happens. When the Lord knocked on their door 
And they refused the gospel when they had the opportunity. Now the, now the time's up. The church is gone. They've continued to live, and now they're in the tribulation. And all these deceptions and this unrestrained sin is coming upon the world. And they have lost their opportunity. And not only do they believe the Antichrist, to your question, that's what this says, God sends them delusion. Those specific people who refused the truth. And why did they refuse the truth? Because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So what does this mean? It just simply means this. There are people right now who are living that, assuming the Lord comes in the next, say, five years, right? There are people right now who are living who are saying no to the Lord because they want to continue in sin. They love sin, just like this says. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. They love sin. They want to continue in sin. They don't want anything to hinder or restrict them, especially like, like believing on Christ. So you know what? They love sin, so they say, nah, I don't want Jesus. Mm, that's not for me. They, can, they delay and delay and delay and delay until finally time's up. The Antichrist is revealed. We're out of here, but the Antichrist is revealed and they have delayed past their opportunity. Because before, when they had the chance, they said, no, I want unrighteousness. And now God sends them strong delusion and, seal, and thus seals their fate. This, all, this is all woven into the, the mark of the beast. And we haven't studied all that in detail, but it's all woven into the mark of the beast and the fact that people are deceived by the Antichrist, but also deluded by the Lord himself because they loved sin when they had the chance to receive the truth and turned it away until it was too late. That's why it's important for us to understand this context. This is a specific group of unbelievers that live through this time of the revelation of the Antichrist, right? That's what it's talking about. But what does that tell us? That tells us a very sobering truth. That those that have not received the gospel are taking a very, very high risk by continuing to love sin and using that as an excuse to refuse the Lord's invitation. It should give us a burden for those that do not know the Lord. This is strong language here. You can talk about the Antichrist and his delusions and, and deception. That's one thing. But when God himself deceives someone, deludes them, there is no hope at all. There's a great risk, a great gamble being played by many people who turn the gospel away because they love sin. And that leads us to another question before we go to 2 Peter. You notice this binary choice? You see it in this? Why did they not believe the truth in this text? Verse 12. They, they refused to believe the truth because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. That leads us to understand something about the nature of repentance. What is repentance? Well, what you have in these people, as an, just as a, as a case study, if you will, is you had people that loved sin, refused to turn from it, would not give it up, would not have a change of heart toward it at all, and that was the cause 
whereby they refused the gospel. Right? So for those people to believe the gospel, they had to turn their back on sin. Right? But because they had pleasure in sin and loved sin, that is iniquity, sin, evil, unrighteousness, the, the wicked acts they committed and the pleasure that that brought, because they wanted to keep that, they couldn't believe the gospel. You can't have both. You see, so to turn to God to believe, that same act involves turning away from sin. It's a binary choice. You only have two choices and they're mutually exclusive. This is what we mean when we talk about repentance. It is impossible to turn to God to believe in Christ without first turning away from sin. It is one act. It is one act. You can't, I, I told this to Cambodians often, you can't, turn, you can't turn to God and come to God and then keep all your sin like a, like a suitcase behind you. Say, God, I'm going to believe in Christ, but I'm keeping all this sin with me. No, 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 no. God will, listen, I'm, I'm going to say something. You're going to go, oh, God will reject you. <laughs> that faith will not work. That is not true faith. That's why the Bible says repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. It's not, it's, not you, it's not you clean your life up so that you can believe. Oh, no, no. It's one act. Boom. Turning from sin to God. And that's the reason these people did not turn to God and believe the gospel when they had the chance. Because of sin. God's salvation is offered to us in God's time and at God's pleasure. And when God says, time's up, and it just so happens that at this period in history, time was up. The, those people who were alive and intentionally, because of their love for sin, refused the gospel. Now there's millions, billions even, that have never been confronted with that question at all. Right? But we're talking about those that were. Their chance will be over. This is, I mean, it's a stern warning. It is dangerous and perilous to the soul to reject God's offer of salvation by delay. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would. Wonderful chapter. We'll just, just for time, we're going to have to just kind of bounce around. Verse 1, this second epistle, chapter 3, verse 1, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you both in which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. So that sets the context. Peter is talking about the last days. We actually covered this already when we talked about the, the apostasy. Verse 4, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, 
whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Which is a reference to Noah's flood, which they also didn't believe. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's interesting, there's a connection between people scoffing about the coming of the Lord who also don't believe in the, the Noahic flood. You know, and if you, if you study any of this stuff about evolution and the history of the earth and the, the creation, what they call it, cosmology, right? If you study that, what you find is the, the flood of Noah plays a major role in all of that. And that is the thing that is most mocked, the flood of Noah. Ha <sighs> ha. A flood covering the earth. Listen, there's a connection between believing in that and believing in the second coming of Christ in this, in this passage. Verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that it one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years of one, as one day. Verse 9, there's two points I want to make, and we'll be done. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. This is the promise of His coming now but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's what I want you to understand. Why hasn't Jesus come yet? There is one answer, one biblical answer. He is long-suffering to us and does not want anyone to perish. That's why Jesus hasn't come. He is being patient with people who are yet rejecting him. Verse 15, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is what? Salvation. That means the longer the Lord waits, and he knows this, the more opportunity people have to believe on Christ and be saved. Does that not parallel what we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 exactly? The Lord is patient and long-suffering to give people an opportunity to respond to the gospel. He wants them to be saved. That's why he hasn't come. The second thing I want you to see is this, verse 11, verse uh, 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with, fer with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, verse 11 is the crux. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look. For, a, for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found, in him of, uh, found of him in peace without spot and blameless. What is the final state? What is the final outcome of everything that we see around us? Destruction. It'll all be burned up. The things we find, the things that we believe, that we hold dear, the things that are, that
that, that we give our lives to serve and to attain, every one of them without exception will perish. That is a fact of the coming of the Lord. All the things we work toward, all of our money, all of our possessions, all of the things that we prize in this world will be dissolved. The Lord wants to reorient our priorities. He does, in light of His coming. He wants us to be looking for something permanent, eternal. That's what He wants. We know because of His coming and the doctrines we found, we've studied thoroughly in the Scripture, we know that all these things will perish. All of them, without any exception. And only eternal things will last and have value. That's why He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Right? How should that affect our lives? How we spend our time? what our priorities are. Of course, we know we live in the flesh. We live in this world. There's certain things that are required. We have to do them. But how should it affect our priorities, our life, our desires, our goals, our aspirations? Like in, in uh, the, the last few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, what does it say? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, right? Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. All right, the Lord, the Lord Jesus is coming back. All these things will be dissolved. All of it's going to be burned up and melted away. What does he say? Right here in this verse. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, listen, the only thing that has lasting value in your life is your relationship to God. That's it. We should live for that purpose. And all these other things ought to be demoted, right, in our priorities so that we don't live for those things. This is what the Lord wants us to take away from His coming, what He wants us to understand about His coming, how it should affect our life in practice. How are, we going, how are we going to respond to the truth that all of these things around us that we prize will not abide? Let's pray together.